Well, once again, it's good to be with you. Uh, really counted the privilege. I'm grateful uh, to Richard and the session for inviting me, uh, inviting me to be here. It's always a delight to be with you. I'm really grateful that Richard is uh, back to lead worship because at least for the first part, we actually followed the order of worship. <laughs> but um, uh, that's a that's a that's a good thing. Uh, we our services are very similar, just slight deviations in the order, and I'm prone to fall back into those many years of following our order of worship without paying attention to what is in front of me. Uh, I, I'm I told you before I'm. Uh, I decided when I came down to, to begin a, a series that, uh, that I've done in the past, um, and that series is on prayer, and I did this uh, for two reasons. Uh, one was because of my own conviction that the, the means of grace of prayer is much neglected and very necessary, I know, in my own life. And, and then on top of that, when I, was, uh, when I was trying to determine what to come and, and share with you all. Uh, first of all, my wife said, why don't you speak on prayer? It was very beneficial. And then I told the session, be praying, I'll be going down Meta Creek, uh, what should I do? And they said, we think that you really ought to do this series that was very useful uh, for us. And so I, I hope I'm not presumptuous. This is just the beginning, the first three. Uh, not that I want Richard to be gone from you because I know you love your pastor, but if we have opportunity to come down again, and I am invited, uh, my intention would be to continue that, that series in prayer. And so um, if you should read that I'm going to be coming, you will know where we are. You can go to Matthew chapter 6, and you can prepare for those things. But I, I'm, I'm grateful for the, Lord's, uh, for the Lord's work here at Meta Creek, and I'm grateful for uh, the uh, the fellowship that we that we have that uh, your pastor and your elders and I have uh, in our like-mindedness um, we do not collude in the past we've had some say well you all just get together and you plot and plan like there's this great conspiracy and my response is always no it just so happens we read from the same book and, and that's what happens the Lord the Lord desires us to be a like mind. Well, uh, I'm going to add one brief passage uh, that's not in your bulletin. I want to read another portion from the Old Covenant from the last chapter of Hosea. Just, uh, just three verses from, uh, from the book of Hosea, and then we will go to our New Covenant text in the sixth chapter of Matthew. Hosea chapter 14 beginning with verse 1, and I ask you to give attention to the reading of God's word. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity and receive us graciously that we may present the fruit of our lips. Assyria will not save us. We will not ride on horses, nor will we say again, our God, the work of our hands. For in thee, the orphan finds mercy. And now our text for the day is from the sixth chapter of Matthew. Very familiar passage to you, of course. We'll begin reading with the ninth verse and read through the 14th. Pray then in this way. 
Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive men for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Let us pray briefly once again. Father, you have told us in your word that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And so we pray that we would approach your word familiar words to us, that we would not just dismiss them because they're familiar, but that we would look unto you and hear your voice, that you'd rebuke the wicked one, Satan, who would take away the seed that falls upon hard ground, that you would soften our hearts by the work of your spirit, that you'd remove that stony ground which underlies a thin covering of soil that in the seasons of trouble, we would not shrink back and wilt and fall away. That you'd remove from us all the thoughts and the cares of this world that would distract us like thorns growing up and choking out the good seed. We pray, Holy Spirit, that your word would fall upon that soil which is been prepared by your spirit to receive the word of truth and faith and to act on it. Bless, Father. And even as we pray for the preaching of the word this morning, we pray that you would bring abundant fruit from Richard's ministry among, uh, among officers in the United States military services. We know, Lord, that you are the one who must speak, and we pray that you would bear them up, instruct them, and make them to shine as lights in a dark world, holding fast the word of truth. Bless us now here, Father, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We come to Lord's Prayer proper. We've been talking in the past about the necessity of prayer, and uh, we went back uh, to um, to uh, Samuel, who, uh, when he had been rejected uh, by the people in favor of a king, uh, the Lord reminded him that he had not been rejected, but they had rejected him, and and he reminds them of their sin, and they say, "Well, please don't stop praying for us." and Samuel said, God forbid, may it be far from me that I should sin against you and against God by ceasing to pray for you. And we looked at other passages that tell us we ought always to pray and not to faint. And then last week we looked at the, in the evening, we looked at the manner of prayer and we saw that there's a way not to pray. And we see that in the opening verses, verses 5 through 8. We're not to pray like hypocrites, and we're not to play, pray like pagans. There is a particular manifestation or particular characteristic of the prayer of God's people. And then the Lord instructs us when he tells us not uh, how not to pray. He says, pray then in this way. And today we want to look at the pattern for prayer that is given to us by our Lord himself. As you look at the Lord's Prayer, and it's familiar to us all, we find that a, a pattern is, that what we have here is really a summary 
it's a summary of the elements that are to be included in our prayer. And as you know, a summary doesn't contain all the details. It is simply a concise way uh, of stating something that, that contains a whole lot of details. You can look at the Ten Commandments. Uh, God runs his universe on Ten Commandments. But in all of those Ten Commandments, there are a number of subsets that are subsumed or contained within the general and that's one of the ways you can, when you read through the Old Covenant, you see the case laws of the Old Covenant. Uh, they were applied to a particular time and place. But the case laws are nothing less than explaining some of the details of the general summary. And so you can learn a great deal about what is included in those Ten Commandments. Well, the Lord's Prayer is a summary of how we are to pray, and the Lord says, when you pray, pray in this manner, pray in this way, pray according to this pattern. It covers everything in prayer in principle, but then it allows for an enlargement or an expansion within the general principle with the particulars and the details. And so the Lord's Prayer instruct us how it is that we are to pray not just how not to pray as the hypocrites and the pagans, but how we are to pray. And so uh, the first thing that I would say to you, the first major heading this, this morning that I would give to you is when you pray, whether it's in private, in your family worship, uh, whether it is in your public, your corporate worship, in your prayer meetings, use the Lord's Prayer as your pattern for prayer. It will transform the way you pray. For many years at Westminster, uh, we have used a simple formula for our public prayer meetings. Uh, we divide, we, uh, we gather uh, on Wednesday nights, um, uh, it's prayer meeting. We have no Bible study, we, we, we gather to pray. And we gather to pray for an hour. And what we try to do, although it doesn't always work out that way, is we divide it into four segments. And the first segment, so we focus our prayers, our first segment is on adoration of God and praise for what he has done. And it forces us to, to think about these things. We get that from the Lord's prayers. We'll see in a moment. Uh, the second segment that we use is the confession of sin, both our particular sins and corporate sins as well. Uh, the third segment of our prayer season is we pray for the works of God's kingdom. And then the last segment is we pray for the particular needs of the congregation. And I think this pattern, which we see in the, and we have time, we'll expound on it later if you'll invite me back again, uh, we'll see how the Lord structures his prayer in that general sense to think about the interests of God and his glory, to confess our sins, to prepare ourselves, then to pray for the great works of God's interests in his kingdom and then finally, we come to our interests. And that doesn't mean we don't pray for interests. It's just that we sometimes stand it on its head. And so I want to urge you to think about those general things, but I want you to use the Lord's Prayer as your pattern for prayer. And the reason for that is, is Jesus himself says, pray then like this. In fact, he says, pray then in this way. And then he gives us word. The reason I wanted to read Hosea is because Hosea sets a pattern also. 
to this straying people of Israel, the northern tribes. He says, come to the Lord and take words with you and say this. Hosea actually puts the prayer into the mouths of his people to instruct them in prayer. I want to uh, read Westminster Catechism, a shorter catechism, question number nine. The question is, what rule hath God given for our direction in prayer? And the answer, the whole word of God is used to direct us in prayer. Uh, and we get to it. The whole word of God becomes uh, a, a uh, what's the word? A directory for our prayers. The promise We pray for the promises. We, uh, we tremble at the threats. We confess, so on. Uh, so it's this pattern, the whole word of God. But they go on and say, but the special rule of direction is that form of prayer which Christ taught his disciples, commonly called the Lord's Prayer. So the writers of the Confession, uh, the, uh, the Westminster Assembly, said the special direction to direct us, to direct the church in our prayers, is the Lord's Prayer. Well, what does this pattern for prayer teach us? If it's a pattern, then we should be learning something. There are several things. The pattern for prayer teaches you that you must pray. We talked about that first in the necessity of prayer. He says, pray then. It's a command. You must pray. And not only must you pray, but you pray in the pattern as well. But we talked about that with the necessity. It's a necessity for the people of God as he addresses his disciples. And they would teach others as well. But prayer is an abiding necessity for the people of God. Your duty is not done once you have prayed. You're to pray without ceasing, as we spoke of earlier. Um, it is something that the Lord has done for me. Actually, I revived an interest. Uh, I've uh, preached on the Lord's Prayer in the past. And um, like anything else, when I preach on something afresh, it reminds me of what I already knew. Um, the other day, I was uh, working on painting in a stairwell. Uh, I used to have incredible balance. Those days are past. And so I was up on a ladder over the, uh, over the steps going down. Uh, I was, I don't, I hope I was not misusing it because uh, I know it refers to our spiritual walk with the Lord, but I was praying, Lord, keep me from falling. And uh, that's a good prayer uh, physically, and, but more important, spiritually. But I think that's a wise thing. Uh, to be constantly speaking with the Lord in prayer. Once you've done that, once you've prayed in the spiritual sense, Lord, keep me from falling. It's a daily prayer that we should have. Lord, I know all the things that are about me. Keep me from falling this day. So the pattern for prayer teaches us that we must pray. It's an imperative. The pattern for prayer stands in contrast to the practice of prayer of unbelief. We looked at the earlier verses, how not to pray like the hypocrites or the pagans, not to be seen of men, and likewise, not to think that we can manipulate God to get him to do what we want to do. That's not the way we pray. We pray that we might honor the Lord, and we pray in a manner that understands that it is a privilege to come into the presence of the Lord, not to make ourselves great, but to magnify the Lord. And so you can see that pattern with regard to thinking that we shall be heard by our much speaking while we read the passage about Elijah, how the prophets of Baal 
uh, were jumping around and they were uh, repeating themselves. And again, again, Baal, hear us, Baal, hear us, Baal, hear us, morning until the time of the evening offering. And they were cutting themselves and doing all kinds of things, thinking they could manipulate their God. And of course, Elijah's there kind of mocking them. Uh, well, maybe he's on vacation. Uh, maybe he's a little hard of hearing. Well, maybe he's indisposed. Um, and then uh, Elijah comes and prays and says, Lord, send fire from heaven. Simple, eloquent, simple prayer. And the Lord answers him. The pattern for prayer, as the Lord Jesus tells us, teaches us that we need instruction. We may think that we know how to pray. But the Lord tells us, and the disciples understood this, Lord, teach us to pray. Not only teach us how to pray, which Jesus is doing here, but teach us to pray. And uh, I know I've, I've tapped this nail several times, but I want to tap it again because I think it's, uh, it is so important. Prayer is, as I mentioned, I think in the introduction, uh, prayer is one of the most vital duties of the church and privileges of the church and the means of grace. And uh, I think it is probably the most neglected, both personally and, and corporately. Um, and uh, truth be told, uh, in the course of my ministry, I had to be taught about the necessity of prayer. And I'm still learning about that. But the pattern teaches us that I need instruction. Luke 11.1, 1, which introduces the Lord's Prayer in Luke's Gospel, says it happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say. In other words, he gives them the words to say. It's, uh, we're children. We're children. We need we need to take words with us. We need to learn to pray. You see, prayer is a difficult Christian discipline. It's a difficult discipline. Um, I think I've mentioned to you, and I'll mention it again. Um, many is the time when, uh, both when I was uh, actively serving as pastor, and even now, uh, when I thought about when I thought about the evening for prayer meeting, I'd say. Uh, you know, that's a lot of work. I, you know, is there something else more important that I could be doing? Or can I plead that I'm just frail about There have been many times when I have not wanted to pray. Same thing with my morning worship. I love word, uh, reading the word. When it comes to prayer, I can find something else to do. But let me say this. I have never come out from our public prayer meeting or finished my season of prayer with the Lord after wrestling with him when I said, boy, I wish I hadn't spent that time with the Lord. I've always come away from that. You see, Satan does not want us to pray and our flesh does not want. It's a difficult discipline. We need this instruction because we find that it's a difficult thing. So prayer requires careful attention and training and discipline. Notice, Jesus doesn't rebuke his disciples for asking to be taught. He encourages them and says, pray this way. And, and, and may, I say, uh, may I say 
with regard to parents who are raising, raising children. Teach your children to pray. Um, teach them to pray. We often think, well, they're do just too young and prayer meetings are a little bit boring and so on and so forth. Um, bring them with you. Bring them with you to prayer meeting. Uh, one of the things that has been a delight to me that, uh, um, that has happened in our, in our prayer meeting uh, recently is that uh, our families have begun to bring their children, come themselves, instead of using their children's excuse not to come. Uh, they bring their children with them Small children, we do provide childcare for very small children, um, but they and our children are learning to pray. Initially, they would just uh, we divide into into different circles so more people can pray. Uh, but in recent weeks, our children are beginning to pray publicly. They're learning to pray as they learn the language of Zion. It's a great thing. Teach them when they're small. Uh, train them. When they're small and when they're old, they will not depart from it. Bring your children. Teach them to pray because it's not just something that, um, that, that happens automatically. There's, there's an etiquette that is to be practiced. You know what I mean by etiquette. There's, there is, um, there's a form and there's a, if, if I can say, uh, there's a deference and a and a an, an honor that we are to use. Uh, there's been a there's been a casualness that has been introduced into the church, which in one sense I can understand because uh, because God is our Father and Jesus is our older brother. But we are coming into the presence of Almighty God, the thrice holy God, before whom the priest Isaiah, when he beheld his glory, fell on his face and said. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among the people of unclean lips. He doesn't come casually and say, Hey, God, my buddy, how are things doing today? No, he comes with a sense of reverence. And I'll just think about that. We just had, a, we just had an inauguration of a, of a new king. It hasn't happened in a long, long time in, in England. And um, <clears throat> I am not an Anglophile. I didn't watch it. Uh, our pastor is a Scot. And so, um, so he was uh, very interested in this. But it's an interesting thing because that form of uh, coronation goes back hundreds and hundreds of years. And there is a lot of biblical truth in that, but there is this, this reverence and deference. Now, I'm not saying that Prince Charles, I think, uh, I, I think Prince Charles was a hypocrite in taking the vows that he took. But there was a form. And there's a form when you come into the presence of royalty that is not to be overlooked. Uh, there is something to be, there's a decorum. And so when we pray, we are to practice that decorum. And so we learn the etiquette. And so David sets his prayers in order. In Psalm 5.8 or 5.3, it says, In the morning, O Lord, I will hear my, you will hear my voice. In the morning, I will order my prayer to you and eagerly watch. And that word for order is like a commanding of troops to set everything in motion to accomplish the purpose. Everything is done in a particular way. And David says, when I come to you in the morning, I'm going to order. My, it's not going to be haphazard. I'm going to learn from the pattern that you've taught me, and I'm going to put it into practice. 
And so the pattern for prayer teaches you to pray in a prescribed manner. Take words with you, as Hosea said. And so I would urge you uh, to use the Lord's Prayer in public worship. Um, we use the Lord's Prayer every Lord's Day morning. We pray together as a congregation. And I know that it can become mindless. I've been guilty of that myself. You don't want the Lord's Prayer to become vain repetition. It's not an incantation. But when I reminded myself, uh, I have a renewed zeal in thinking seriously about what I am praying when I pray the Lord's Prayer. It's really helped me to go through this series myself because uh, it's important to understand we are not just going through motions. We are following the instruction of our Lord who teaches us to pray. It is a liturgy, and liturgy is a good thing. Some people despise it, by the way. Those who say, uh, we don't have a liturgy here, we just do what we want. Well, that's their liturgy, isn't it? Everybody does what they want to do. Everyone does what's right in his own eyes. Well, that's a liturgy in itself. No, we, we seek to order uh, our worship according to the word of God. And we have warrant for that in the way that the Lord set up the tabernacle and said, when you approach God, this is the way you do it. You don't do your own thing. You order your worship according to my desires. Well, we order our prayers that way as well. But also I would urge you, and I think you've picked up on this, I would urge you to use the Lord's Prayer for your private and family and corporate prayer meetings as well. It's the pattern that the Lord Jesus gave us to pray. Pray then in this way. Prayer should ordinarily include all of the elements of the Lord's Prayer. Who we address, adoration, confession, petitions for God's kingdom, petitions for the necessity of life, petitions for salvation and sanctification. All those elements. Now, please don't misunderstand me. When Peter got out of the boat and started to sink, he didn't go through adoration, confession, and so on and so forth. He said, there are times, I'm talking about when we are ordering our prayers. But not only should those elements be present in their summary state, but prayer should enlarge on the elements of the Lord's Prayer. Some of the particulars and those things we would cover if you would ever have me back, or you can just think about it yourselves as you read through the scriptures. Look at the, if you want to learn how uh, to pray, look at the prayers in scripture. Look how Paul prayed. Look how Daniel prayed. Look how Solomon prayed. Look how Moses prayed. Uh, you will find that, uh, that those uh, men of faith in scripture prayed quite differently from the way most of us pray in the way that I still uh, find myself praying. And so it's a pattern. The, the pattern uh, is what we are to use for our prayer. Use the Lord's Prayer as your pattern for prayer. And then the pattern directs us to pray to God alone. Now that, that should be simple, but I'm going to talk about some of the particulars here. And here I want to read the larger catechism. We read the shorter catechism with regard 
to the pattern being the Lord's Prayer, listen to what the larger catechism, question 189, says. Here's the question. What does the preface of the Lord's Prayer teach us? The preface is our Father, which art in heaven. That is the preface to the Lord's Prayer. And the answer, the preface of the Lord's Prayer, contained in these words, our Father, which art in heaven, teacheth us when we pray to draw near to God with confidence in his fatherly goodness and our interest therein, with reverence and all other childlike dispositions, heavenly affections, and due apprehensions of his sovereign power, majesty, and gracious condescension, as also to pray with and for others. So what can we learn from the preface to the Ten Commandments? Well, first of all, it tells us that we are to pray to God alone. There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Now, again, the Lord is teaching his disciples. He's teaching them, and, and we understand this. We understand that there is but one God, and he is the only one who answers prayer. The gods of the nations are idols. They have eyes but don't see, ears but don't hear, noses but don't smell, hands that don't work, and feet that don't move. Uh, they're just empty things. That's uh, Baal could do nothing because he has no existence at all. But our God is in the heavens and his ear is inclined. But there's something else in this. When you when we pray, our tendency is to immediately go to our requests because we're a needy people, as, uh, as Jerry prayed this morning. We are indeed a needy people, and that presses upon us. But the Lord's Prayer would instruct us, as the Lord teaches us to pray, to pause. Again, uh, again this is uh, in, your, in your daily conversation, but when we're talking about when you're ordering your prayer, the Lord's Prayer teaches us to begin to think and to meditate upon who it is to whom we approach in prayer. And that we don't just enter casually, although the Lord does tell us that we can enter um, in, in times of need. We have a high priest, but when we are ordering our prayers, we are uh, to approach self-consciously, understanding who it is to whom we pray. We are to reflect on the revealed character of the God to whom we pray, our Father, who art in heaven. That's how the Lord Jesus tells us we are to pray. Uh, by the way, when I was speaking about praying to God alone, one of the, uh, one of the things that uh, many years ago we had the privilege, we, on two occasions we had the privilege to visit Italy, and in many ways, we uh, we absolutely uh, we absolutely loved Florence, Italy. Uh, Rome was very interesting. I found it to be oppressive. And one of the oppressive things is everywhere you go, you have these statues of Mary and the saints and all these things. And and one uh, one in particular uh, was striking to me because it was a uh, it was a monument, and it was on a pedestal, and there was a cross with the crucifix on one side and on the other side, Mary. Jesus on one side, Mary on the other, the mediatrix between us and, 
and God. That's oppressive. That's blasphemy. You see, we are to pray to God alone, and there is one mediator who is the Lord Jesus Christ. So the pattern directs us to reflect on God as Father. Now, this is important in our day, but just listen to some verses, uh, just a, just a smatter, where God reveals himself to his people as Father. Psalm 68, 5. A father of the fatherless and a judge for the widows is God in his holy habitation. A father of the fatherless and a judge for the widows is God in his holy habitation. Psalm 103, 13, just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him, for he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. As a father has compassion on his children, so our father has compassion. He knows our needs. He knows how destitute we are and has compassion upon us. Isaiah 9, 6, speaking of Jesus, and it's a curious thing because we know that our God is one God in three persons, but speaking of the Son, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. It's interesting that Jesus is the Son, but he's also termed the Everlasting Father as he is one in substance with the Father as well. And his name would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And in Isaiah 63, 16, for you are our Father, through though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not recognize us, you, O Lord, are our Father. Our Redeemer from the old is your name. Now I want to... Uh, I want to pause here, and I want to be—I uh, want to be cautious. But one of the one of the big problems that we face in the Western world right now is that um, much of our culture, when the Lord tells us to pray, "Our Father which art in heaven," people don't know what that means. One of the one of the assaults upon the Christian faith is the disintegration of the family. So that, and maybe there are some here who have this, either because of uh, the death of a father or uh, because of divorce or what, but there, a significant portion of our population does not know what it is to have the God of the Bible represented in fathers in the family. And that's a travesty. Uh, one of the things that our congregation is doing is uh, there are some projects down below the church, uh, where, uh, which is public housing. And um, on, uh, on Tuesdays during the school year, uh, there's an effort to reach out to these children. And these people, the only thing that they know about Jesus Christ is that he's used in cursing. They know nothing about him. And when our people are trying to teach them about God as father, they have no concept because they're fatherless homes. Or when they think of a father, all they can think of one who is abusive, cursing, 
alienated, alienating. And so if that's your view, put it aside. You have to come to the scripture to pray this prayer, our Father who art in heaven. And those of you who were raised in homes with fathers, and particularly godly fathers, give thanks to God for that great gift. Because you don't know what a gift it is. You have no idea what a gift it is to have a father who loves and cares and disciplines you. What a blessing it is. I look back upon my father and I'm so grateful for him that he was one that taught me something about God. And one of the, one of the things he taught me was respect and reverence. I loved my father. I couldn't wait for him to come home unless my mother at some point during the day had said, wait till your father comes home. Now, now, I was not afraid of my father in the sense that he was a terror to me, but he was a terror to my disobedience. And I'm grateful for that. There were times when I was want to stray and one of the things that kept me because I'm not certain I don't know when the Lord converted me I had made a profession of faith as a fairly young child 11 or can't remember I was trying to remember 11 or 13 but my life didn't change until I was in college but one of the things that kept me was the disapproval of my I did not want to invite the disapproval of my parents and that was a good thing well when we approach the Lord in prayer, we want to honor, we want his favor. And so what can we learn about this? As we think about God as our father, we think about this, we might approach him with reverence. Malachi 1.6, a son honors his father and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is is my respect. You see, this is a reflection of the fifth commandment. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God gives you. You see, fathers should be honorable. God is honorable. He does not lie. He is our keeper and our preserver and our holy God. He is the one, we'll talk about it in a minute, who gives us life itself. But we think about his character as a father, that we might approach him with reverence and not flippant. Uh, this did not, I would never think about being flippant to my father. But I do remember one occasion when I was smart, well, not one occasion, but one occasion in particular when I, when I was smarting off my mother. She was correcting me for something, and I just gave her a, a sneering, wise, it wasn't wise, but wiseacre, just a smart aleck response, and before I knew it, she had just slapped me across the face. Thank you, mother. My father would not have stood for that. I think that may have been one of the occasions where my mom said, wait till your father gets home, because she was representative of our home, of God and of my father. You see, that's a, a good thing. Reverence, God expects us to approach him with honor. We might approach with confidence. He said that he 
is the one who pities us and cares for us. And so we can approach, when we pray to, to, to our God, he is our father. He doesn't despise us. He loves us. And as our current pastor reminded me a number of weeks ago, and it's maybe it was months ago, it stuck with me. I think it may have been as he was praying, it may have been as he was preaching. But he reminded me and our congregation, there has never been a time when God has not loved me, ever. From before the foundation of the world, God loved me. And if you're in Christ, he loved you. And there will never be a time in the present or in the future where God will stop loving you because he doesn't change. Now, our fathers sometimes acted unwisely. We understand that. But I never, I never doubt that my father loved me. And can I doubt that my God loves me? And when you approach, you are to be confident that your Lord loves you. He's a father of the fatherless and of the widow. We pray to our father that we might approach with expectation and hope. Luke 11. What father among you, if his son asks a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? You see, what father is going to respond to his child's request with something that is damaging instead of helping. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? That's just a common prayer for me. I cite this frequently in my personal prayers. Lord, give me your spirit today. More more of your spirit, more of his guidance, more of his protection, that Christ might be formed. I need your spirit to keep me from sin, to create in me new affections for things that are above and not for things on the earth. I need that every day. And will you not give that? If I know how to give good gifts to my children, will you not give me the Holy Spirit? You've promised, and you lay hold of the promises with confidence and expectation. And this from Romans 8. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You see, our fathers may have desired to give us things that they wanted to give us and simply didn't have the capacity. Your God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And he gave you his son, and his son gave himself for you. And do you think that he's going to withhold what is necessary from you? If he gave us the greatest, he's not going to give us. Now, that doesn't mean he gives us everything we want. But he gives us everything that we need. Hallelujah. We approach with expectation. So, I just ask you, do you do that? Do you, do you take the time? And that's one of the reasons why we begin with adoration and praise. We take the time. And if you 
Again, if you have trouble with it, again, I think I mentioned last time, whether in the morning or the evening, one of the reasons I have trouble with adoration is because I don't know God well enough. But one of the things that you might do, as I often do when I get stuck thinking about these things, I will do one of two things. I will take, I will take the, the passage in Deuteronomy where Moses asks the Lord to show him his glory. And I think it's Deuteronomy 34. Where the Lord says, you can't look on my glory face to face, but I'll show you the, the after parts, the afterglow of my glory. I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock and, and you can look at the after parts. And then the Lord shows him his glory by declaring his name, who he is. The Lord the Lord God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And I'm having a senior moment. But when I have senior moments, I ask the Spirit to bring it to mind because he does forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of generations of those who love me and keep my commandment. Now, that becomes a pattern for worship and adoration. You can take every word of that prayer and enlarge upon it. Yahweh, I am. I, I don't have time to go through it, but you know what? Or you can take the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. You can take every word of that. By the way, if, if I didn't tell you this, we have time for a short anecdote of how that came about. If I haven't told you, I know I'm, I know I'm longer than you probably want to be, but it's a remarkable providence of God. Westminster, Westminster Assembly was trying to uh, answer the question, what is God? And they were to stand still. And one of the youngest men at the, uh, at the assembly was George Gillespie, known for his piety and his understanding of scripture. And I, I think, I can't remember who it was, but they called upon George Gillespie to prayer. How, pray, how can we how can we answer the question, what is God? And so they decided to pray. And they asked George Gillespie to lead them. And do you know how George Gillespie began his prayer? Oh God, you who are infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in your being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And somebody was paying attention and wrote it down. And that's how we got the question and answer. What is God? Because God knew what they had need of before they even asked. I apologize for that little excursus. I just find it an amazing providence of God. We address our prayers to the Father. And the pattern directs us to evaluate our relationship. 
And the question is, of course, we know that God is the father of all living things because he has made us all. All men sustain an objective relationship. Malachi 2.10, do we not all have one father? Has not God created us? That's true. But only those who confess this relationship by faith can call upon him. Hebrews 11.6 says, and without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who, who seek him. Reading something about a man who has been brought out of atheism, but he was saying, now he says, I'm no longer an atheist, I'm a theist, but I'm not certain about God being the creator. Well, that man is still far from the Lord because no one can approach the Lord without acknowledging him as, as being the creator. It's interesting that men do not ordinarily speak to non-existent beings, unless you're a little bit strange. But men do know that there, there is a God. I remember listening to an apologist engaging, um, it was a video, he was engaging a professed atheist, a young college student, and um, the apologist said, uh, how come you aren't here protesting against those who believe in Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny? And the answer was rather interesting. He said, well, we know that they don't exist, meaning we're not certain that God does not exist. We think he does. We just don't like it. And isn't that what Romans 1 tells us? Suppress the knowledge of God. At any rate, we are those who sustain the relationship with God as creator, but that in itself is not sufficient. It comes back to we must understand that we approach him as our father. And that relationship means that we must have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We must believe that God is our father by way of redemption and recreation. This is what qualifies men to call on God as Father. He's the author of the new birth. As many as received him, to them gave he the right to become the sons of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That's what qualifies us. The author of the new birth, who'd been born from above. He's the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's only by union with Christ that we are counted as children. If we're not in Christ, if we're not believing in him, then whatever else we believe, then we are not in him. He's our father by adoption. Galatians 4, 4 through 7. When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. One of the things about adoption in, uh, in the Roman world, if you were a biological child, you could be disinherited. I'm getting this from Nick Wilburn. He was instructing me in this. But Nick Wilburn, who's the pastor at Covenant in Oak Ridge and a former uh, professor at uh, Greenville Seminary. In Roman culture, if you were adopted, you could never be disinherited. Isn't that amazing? 
You can never be disinherited. You've been adopted. You're heir and a joint heir with Christ. And this is the God to whom we come. And so we confess him as our father by faith, not in the abstract, but in the intimate, the source of life, our ultimate authority, our provider, the one who loves us better than any human father. And the pattern directs us to pray as a member of God's family. Not only father, but our father. Yes, he's my father, but he's our father. And so the Lord teaches us to pray as a member of God's family. This is an example. The pattern teaches us that we're to engage in corporate prayer together. And may I encourage you to foster that and to take advantage of those opportunities. We certainly pray personally and individually, but we must also pray with the whole family in mind. And finally, the pattern directs us to address our heavenly father. Sometimes people think this, well, he's way out there. We can't see him. And I want you to understand that this is not a phrase of limitation, that somehow he's not on the earth or he's distant. Because First Kings tells us, 827, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heavens cannot contain him. How much less this house which I have made. Yes, he's our father in heaven, but this is a phrase not of limitation, but of exaltation. It raises our eyes from earth to heaven. And so when you pray to God as your father, you pause and you contemplate his majesty. He says he looks down on the highest heavens. He looks down. He's above the highest heavens. You, you, you seek to behold. Now, he's incomprehensible, but you try to get a glimpse of his majesty, of his omnipotence. There is nothing that he cannot do. There is no wisdom. There is no understanding. There is no counsel that can stand against the decrees of God. There's nothing that is able to frustrate his plan. We contemplate his omniscience. He knows everything about us. He knows us better than we know ourselves, and he knows our circumstances. He's ordered them. And we behold his glory. We behold his glory. And when our hearts are in that frame, then we're ready. Then we're ready to begin our petitions. So he's the one who brings heaven down to us. And he's the one who brings us up to heaven. And that's the frame with which we approach the Lord. That's what the pattern of prayer teaches us. So just beware of mere formal recitation of the Lord's prayer. It is appropriate to use God's inspired word in our prayers but we pray from the heart. It's easy to, I do it. It's easy to let my mind wander. But when you are praying the Lord's Prayer together, consider carefully what you are doing and understand that you're in the presence of Almighty God. And use God's pattern to order your prayers individually and corporately. David set his prayers in order. Hosea said, take words with you. Jesus said, pray in this manner. Take it seriously. 
And as you pray, remember and worship him to whom you pray, knowing that he is your heavenly father who has loved you from before time and will love you forever. Let's pray together. Father, we have uh, spent time in your word with regard to the pattern of prayer. And we ask, Lord, that by your grace, you would write these things upon our hearts and that we would learn to order our prayers, that you would teach us to pray day by day and that you would give us that strong confidence that you as our Father know what we need before we even ask. And yet you would have us to ask that you might glorify yourself. Lord, set your glory before us. Frame our hearts. We might contemplate your greatness, your goodness, your kindness, that you are more willing to hear and answer than we are to pray. Lord, teach us to pray 